In fact, I want to start ta- by talking about the word dignity. Dignity. Uh, the dictionary says that dignity is a noun, and it is the state or quality of being worthy of honor or respect. A composed or serious manner of style. For example, he bowed with great dignity. A sense of pride in oneself, self-respect. It was his beneath his dignity to shout. Okay. The, the thesaurus suggests these synonyms. The dignity of the proceedings, stateliness, nobility, majesty, regality. It's making me want to puke to say all these things. Okay. Uh, for example, he lost his dignity or his self-respect, pride, self-esteem, or self-worth. Every one of us as a human being has some innate desire to experience dignity. And actually that makes a lot of sense in light of how we were created and by whom we were created. The scripture tells us in Genesis 1, 26, 27, that God made people, men and women, in His image. I mean, we receive dignity from God. The psalmist in Psalm 8 talks about how human beings, you know, you look up at the sky, you see the universe, you see some of these photos coming back from the Hubble telescope, and you're like, what are we that God would take any notice of us. And yet, the psalmist goes on to say, He made you and me just a little lower than God. And He put all the created things into our care, into our stewardship. So He, he gives us great dignity. And certainly, I think one of the most dehumanizing things we can do to each other is try and rob dignity from one another by humiliating each other. But somehow... In the twisted way in which sin has us perceive our world, we have turned God's gift of dignity and redefined it into something I don't even think He would recognize. We've tried to make dignity something in our own image. We've tried to define dignity apart from God. So instead of seeing our dignity as a result of God's kind intention, we've made it about maybe the way we dress. And I'm only dressed like this because I was just at a wedding. I had to be dignified. See? The social pressure that I feel. Um, we, we define dignity by maybe the social positions we hold in our culture uh, or our social structures. What began as God's surprising gift to a, a bunch of naive and unworthy human beings, undeserving children, if you will, has now become something serious and unsilly and puffed up and judged by human standards. Human dignity, apart from God, has crossed the border of the absurd and is far deep in the territory of the ridiculous when you think about it. There's a story in the Bible, in 2 Kings 5, about a guy named Naaman. Anyone heard of Naaman? Yeah, Naaman is this character where he is a, he's a, a captain of the army of the Arameans. The Arameans were kind of in the Palestine, general Palestine area. And he was a very important man. In fact, the scripture says this about him. Uh, he was a great man like his master, the king of Aram. He was highly respected. He was a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. So he's got this leprosy issue, but everything else about him is dignified. And he takes his band of army guys and they go into Israel and they do a raid on these towns. And he takes this little Jewish girl and brings her back to his household to be his wife's servant. 
All right? So here they've ripped this poor girl away from her culture, her family, uh, a way to worship her God. And she still has it, the kindness in her heart to say, you know what, my, my master, her husband Naaman has leprosy, and I know a guy who could help him. The prophet Elisha in my hometown deals with this kind of stuff all the time. So she tells Naaman, Naaman goes to the king of Aram, his boss, and he says, there's this guy that's supposed to be able to help me. So the king of Aram, very dignified man, writes a dignified letter to the dignified king of Israel and sends Naaman on his way. Naaman in a dignified carriage, a caravan with you know a, a chariot. He goes with all of his entourage to the king of Israel. I'm here for my healing, sir. Well, I don't do healings, but there's this prophet, you know, you've got to go travel to him. So, oh, fine, I'll go to Elisha. So he goes to Elisha, and Elisha, you know, clairvoyantly sees that Naaman is coming. You know, I've got other healings to do, and I've got to make an axe head float and stuff like that. So uh, I'll send my servant out to meet this Naaman character on the way. So there is Naaman. He gets greeted, not even by the prophet himself, but by the prophet's messenger. All right, now I'm really getting ticked off, naming the dignified man must think. I mean, this is worse than calling the IRS helpline trying to get any help on a tax code. I'm just saying, Chad, you're feeling me there. All right. So then it gets really bad. This servant of Elisha says to Naaman, the dignified captain of the army, all you got to do is dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River. He says, that's it. This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. You know who I am? The rivers in Aram, they're way better than your Jordan River. I'm, I'm going home. So he starts taking off. And his counselors say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't go. Don't go. Had the prophet told you to do some great thing, you would have done it. How much more than when he says to you, simply wash and be clean. And as the story goes, Naaman comes back, dips himself seven times in the, in the Jordan River, and he is cleansed. He has undignified faith. He stoops to a level of his human digni- dignity would prevent him from, but he follows this undignified course of God, and he receives the healing of God. This evening we're going to look at a famous story. It occurs in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the same general way. And in this story, we're going to be amazed at some people's undignified faith. I want to encourage you to stand with me as I read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. While he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died. But come, lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him. And so did his disciples. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, If I only touch the tassels of his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, Leave, for the girl has not yet died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took by the hand the girl, and she got up. This news spread throughout all the land. Lord, we're thankful that this news has spread beyond the land and into Letter Street's Covenant Church here and now in 2013. 
Lord, I pray that this message would be more than a history lesson, more than a cool story. But we believe that your word is living and active. We believe you want us to hear something about this today so that it will change our hearts and our minds about you. Lord, lead us into deeper trust. Help us to be willing to be disheveled and undignified if it means uh, new life in you. Amen. You may be seated. So the passage begins with these words, while he was saying these things to them. Well, of course, we need to ask who was saying what things to whom. If you recall, last week when Pastor Jeff Flint preached here, we know that Jesus, the Messiah, called Matthew the tax collector from his tax collecting booth and said, follow me. And Matthew leaves his profession, leaves his, his tax collecting booth behind, and is so just taken with the love of Christ that he, he throws a party for Jesus. Uh, he throws a big dinner party and he has all his friends, these other tax collectors and people that uh, generally would be, would be seen as sinners. So they, they, they're all eating with Jesus. And the Pharisees, the fundamentalists of the day, got all bent out of shape and confronted Jesus' disciples. Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? See, in those days, eating with someone was more than just like sharing calories with each other. It meant, it meant I accept you, and it meant taking on your status, your honor, your shame. So you only wanted to eat with, with people who were your class, or even better, a little bit higher, because then you could receive some of their dignity. But what Jesus was doing, and what really made the Pharisees mad, was he was eating with these people of very low moral character, very low moral standing. And as a teacher, one who represented in some way, shape, or form uh, the, the Jewish people and the Jewish law and the scriptures, they were mad. Why are you taking the stain of those people onto yourself and thus vicariously maybe to the rest of us? Well, if you've been following along the story since chapter 8, we see what happens when Jesus confronts unclean people. Remember, he confronts this leper. And normally, if you're in contact with a leper, you are considered unclean. But when Jesus is confronted, uh, confronts this leper... Not only does the leper get physically clean, but he, he receives the, the holiness of Jesus, the rescue of Jesus. So Jesus is contagious. When he's on the scene, his holiness, his purity is contagious, not the other way around. So Jesus catches wind of the Pharisees' disapproval, and he lets them know in no uncertain terms, listen, just so we don't have any mix-ups from here on out, I'm paraphrasing, I, I am here... To heal the sick, not the healthy. A doctor comes on the scene to heal the sick. A hospital isn't for people who are already well. Okay? Well, apparently he is still with this unsavory crowd around the dinner table when a man approaches Jesus. The, Matthew's text in your Bible probably says a ruler or a ruler of the synagogue. Actually, that little part about the synagogue is added. It might be in italics in your Bible. It just says in the Greek, a ruler came to Jesus. So this ruler comes to Jesus. And we know from Mark's version of the story and Luke's version of the story that this man is named Jairus. And that he was a leader in the synagogue, which is the Jewish place of worship. Scripture reading, okay, for the little municipalities who weren't always around the temple. 
So this guy was pretty high up. This guy was in cahoots with uh, many of the religious leaders. His colleagues were the ones who would be uncomfortable with eating with tax collectors and sinners. I bet you this man on a normal day would be uncomfortable eating with tax collectors and sinners. Okay. This guy, his friends, his extended friendship group or his colleagues would be also the ones who eventually would, in cahoots with the Romans, bring the demise of Jesus. But we learned something. We learned that this man has had an experience in which his dignity takes a back seat to everything else. You know, there comes a time when whatever you're wearing or whatever you think your status is, is not important anymore. This man's daughter had died. And here's the most amazing thing. Listen to this leader's words. My daughter has died, but... Remember how <laughs> buts are so important in the gospel? Usually it's but God. My daughter has died, but... Come, lay your hand on her, and she will live. What faith? Not come, maybe you can do something. Do you think there's anything you can do? Not I believe you have faith if you want to. Come, lay your hand on her, and she will live. And what good news? Jesus got up and followed this man. Didn't have a conversation. Didn't debate with him about anything. Didn't ask him if he had any money. Jesus got up and followed him. And usually we read about Jesus calling us and others to follow him. I mean, that's what leaders do, right? They call people to, to follow them. Uh, but this is the Lord who meets us where we are. This is the Lord who is willing to show his love by meeting us in our pain and in our need. This is the Lord who leads as a servant. Think about how that might shake up your definition of dignity. Well, I hope you see what kind of good news this is. Because in most of the Bible and most of the gospel texts, Jesus seems in opposition to the rich and to the powerful and to the religious leaders. He seems to favor the poor. He seems to favor the outsider and the despised. This particular story is really good news for most of the people I see in this room, and I'm including myself. Because compared to most of the world, we're like this guy a lot more than we are like the poor and the oppressed and the outsider. Compared to most of the world, we're quite wealthy. Compared to most of the world, we're quite powerful. And you may not think that, but if you're a registered voter in a superpower, like the United States, you are, have relative power compared to other people. And some of you are religious leaders, lead team members, ministry leaders, small group leaders, and maybe I'm the most guilty of all. Obviously, I'm the talking head up here. But in this story, we learn that Jesus isn't opposed to people just because of their social situation. He's opposed to hardness of heart and pride. So he doesn't like just carte blanche, like favor the poor and, and have a hard time with the rich. It's just that most times rich people are more prideful and arrogant than poor people who know their need all the time. Wealth and power and leadership are not evil at all, but they do complicate things. Jesus said it's, more, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because our wealth and our social connections and position 
can so easily insulate us from feeling needy for Jesus. See, the poor, I mean, they can be just as arrogant as everyone else. But they're reminded of their need for God every day. And when they pray the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, they really mean it. The political prisoner has no recourse to cry out except to God when they're unjustly imprisoned without trial or without appeal process. The religious outcast must speak directly to God when the priests and pastors and church leaders won't give them the time of day. But the wealthy, we can easily be lulled into a false sense of security that food will never run out. The well-connected can't imagine being overly harassed by the law. We have too many friends in the right places for that. Right? The religious insiders, those of us who frequent the church, we can become... um, We can see the, the mysteries of the sacraments and the teaching of Scripture as routine and pedestrian instead of great mysteries of God. But there are things in our lives that can wake up even the most insulated people like a slap in the face or a bucket of cold water. All the money in the world can't guarantee that your spouse will be faithful to you. Where would you turn then? All the powerful connections in the world can't help you when you're diagnosed with terminal cancer. What would you do? And even the most pious churchgoer or leader can't save a sick or a dying child. What will following all the rules get you then? The leader in our story was experiencing his world coming crashing down around him. His daughter has died. I've got three daughters. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. His daughter had died. All the dignity in the world, at least as the world defines dignity like filthy rags, worthless. And so in his desperation and with his faith, he risks uncleanness and he, and he risks ridicule. He goes right into this dinner party with the tax collectors and sinners. He's exposed to all their shamefulness. And this radical, he goes to this radical young teacher, Jesus. And Jesus follows him. Doesn't say, you need me now, huh? Where's all your high important friends? He didn't say anything like that. Jesus responds to the man's faith, to the man's desperation. Brothers and sisters, Jesus isn't waiting for you to get better. He isn't waiting for you to get your theology just straight or for you to hang out with the right people. He just wants your absolute trust, your faith in him. When you break it down like that, that is really very, very freeing. Well, Jesus is on his way to follow this ruler to help his daughter. And he has another encounter with a cultural taboo. A woman who had been suffering from a menstrual hemorrhage for 12 years. Let's just stop right there. We know from the Old Testament law that there are strict rules about what made a person clean and unclean. And some of them are strange. And I mean, some of them are really strange. And I know that this text is kind of gritty, but the Bible talks about it. 
and uh, and I'm not too un- I'm not too dignified to talk about it either. So if you're okay, I'm okay. Small children, block your ears. Okay. But to me, some of the weirdest laws are these clean unclean laws about things that we frankly can't help. All right, guys, think about when you're 15. These laws about nocturnal emission, please, can anyone help that? I mean, come on, how fair is that? And, and, and women, my wife has told me less is more, but you get the picture. Like, how can we help these things? Then, and, then, and then God says in the law, well, it makes you clean and unclean, right? If you, if you have these, these things that you can't help, it makes you unclean. Like, that's just biology. That's how you made us. So why is that bad? Well, Rick Watts, a teacher at Regent, has helped me understand this a little bit. And he, and he talks about one of the, uh, the customs about when you would come into the presence of God that you take your shoes off. Why do we take our shoes off? Our shoes are not evil, right? Shoes are kind of the clo- close to saying natural. I mean, it's what people wear. Uh, why do we take our shoes off? In the ancient world, your shoes uh, represented dominion over the things that you would stand on. God has given us dominion over our world, over our creation. But He ultimately is the one that we're under. So when we're in the presence of God, you take your shoes off because you recognize that you are the true king. You have full dominion, even over my little mini reign. And when you're in the presence of a a king in those days, you would take your shoes off, recognizing that I might be a plot holder of lands that you allow me to have, good king, but in your presence I take my shoes off because we don't want to get the wrong idea about who's really in charge. Okay? The closest thing we have to being like God is our biological ability to procreate. And those things are just fine. But when you come into God's presence, or the presence of God's worshiping people, remember the people of Israel originally weren't just like a country. It was a a holy worshiping people, a, a nation of priests. And so when you come into this community, you don't come in with those emissions because you are recognizing that there is only one ultimate creator of life. And you don't carry those things into his presence. So, these categories, which have been set aside, thanks to Jesus, uh, were established to help the people of Israel respect authority and majesty and dependence on God. Okay? So in the ancient world, a woman who had a horrible sickness, where she's hemorrhaging for 12 years, would mean that she was unclean, that she was isolated, And that she was incurable. Luke's gospel tells us she had tried all these different remedies. It was incurable. So she's hopeless for 12 years. No stop. The specific Greek wording here indicates that what what she touched was one of four tassels on Jesus' robe. She, she, She snuck up behind him thinking to herself, if I just touch his garment, I'll be healed. She touches one of the four tassels on Jesus' robe. Now, Numbers 15 tells us that the Israelites were supposed to wear four tassels on the corners of their robes to remind them of God's faithfulness. By the first century, these tassels were normally worn by religious leaders. Not, Not everybody wore them all the time. So they represented a kind of authority. So the woman is appealing to Jesus' authority in touching the tassel of his robe. Now, does that sound eerily like magic to you? Like, if I touch his clothes, I'll be healed. 
You know, you hear about pilgrims traveling across the world. If I just touch the shard of bone from St. Peter, fill in the blank. Or if I go to that shrine where these healings happen, maybe I will get healed. And so you hear about these amazing stories. Um, And typically, especially as Protestants, we blow them off like, this is superstition, this is magic. We don't do that. And let's get something straight right off the bat. The Bible as a whole communicates God's stance against magic of any kind. Magic is humanity trying to manipulate nature using incantations, using concoctions. Like, you know, you see the cartoons, the witch's brew. I mean, there's, uh, you know, concoctions. Uh, You see... um, Connections with the occult or the demonic. I mean, these types of magic is a, is, a, is a human being trying to manipulate nature. Okay, Faith is something completely different. I've been reading uh, about pilgrimage lately, and frankly, there are just too many stories of healing and encounter with God to call all pilgrimages a hoax. But the responsible writers on pilgrimage all agree... That things tend to happen for those who carry their faith with them. It's all about what you bring along the journey. So the person that has no faith in God, but just shows up thinking that a shrine or a bone shard or a piece of hair from Mary or something like that, which probably isn't even real, is going to heal them, good luck with that. Uh, but, But true pilgrims carry with them a deep sense of faith before they ever leave the house. And so oftentimes it's an encounter along the way uh, that is substantial. So what I mean is that faith is trusting, trusting in the person of Jesus, not just in something or a piece of clothes. The Apostle Paul, for example, was casting out demons, and the seven sons of Sceva saw him doing that, and they wanted to do it too. And they heard him casting out demons in Jesus' name. So they go to this demon-possessed dude, and they, uh, you know, there's seven of them, and they try and cast out the demon in Jesus' name. And the demon just like, hey, I know Paul, and I know Jesus, but who the heck are you guys? And he beats the heck out of them, uh, this demon-possessed guy. And why is that? Because they're just calling on a talisman. They're calling on Jesus' name. They have no relationship with him. While as Paul is connected to the Lord, it is the Lord casting out demons through Paul. The woman in our story wants to touch Jesus' tassels of authority. Not because she thought his robe was magic, but because she trusted the one wearing that robe. And that makes all the difference in the world. (coughs) When you trust Jesus, by the way, all kinds of weird things can happen. Things that are hard for our Western, rational, frankly boring minds to get around. So don't be surprised if weird things happen when you start trusting Jesus. So, she touches his clothes, his tassel. And I love this language. It's all participles to show the action. Jesus turning, and this is guys, especially if you like machine guns, this is cool. The Greek word is strafo, like strafe fire. Okay, so get the picture. Jesus strafo turning and seeing the woman. It's all in this, this happening right now. Get in the action. Jesus turning and seeing the woman. He sees this woman who has been isolated and unclean and incurable. He sees her. Has she been seen? for 12 years by anyone maybe she doesn't feel like it turning and seeing he says to her daughter Mm, this endearing term of acceptance daughter take courage your faith 
insert Chris here, your faith, not my robe, has made you well. And at once, the woman was made well. She risks going into a crowd in public, this unclean woman. She wasn't supposed to do that. She risks getting near a teacher of the scriptures. That was even more taboo. She risks touching him. And Jesus says, daughter, take courage. Where have we heard those words, take courage, recently? You remember? The, the paralytic. Remember the paralytic, the boldness of that paralytic busting through somebody's roof, interrupting Jesus' teaching? I mean, I'd be terrified. Can't move, I'm on this stretcher coming down, here's all these mean faces, dudes whose house I just ruined. And Jesus says, take courage. Take courage. Jesus sees you. He sees the rich and powerful. He sees the poor and needy. And my point here isn't so much our class or culture or position. I think that Jesus sees and responds to those people with faith. And faith oftentimes is undignified. It takes a little bit of boldness, a little bit of edge. But you take that risk and I think Jesus says, Son or daughter, take courage. Take courage. So this is amazing, the little side story it might seem like, kind of like an Oreo cookie, here is the filling. Now we get back to the other uh, chocolate cookie, we get back to Jairus. And when they get to his house, Jesus tells the crowd of mourners to leave. The girl isn't dead, and they laugh. In fact, there's only, uh, the word for laugh here in the Greek is only used here, nowhere else in the New Testament. It basically means laughed hilariously, laughed uncontrollably, a belly laugh. Like they are just... What are you talking about? Of course she's dead. They've hired, they've hired us mourners and flute players, and even poor families had to hire at least a, a couple singers and a flute player. It's just what you did. So you have all these professional wailers. Oh. Yeah, have you ever seen that other I'm not going to do that again. That's undignified. Anyhow, so, uh, but Jesus tells them to go. She's not dead, and they, they laugh. And that's the point, that she is very dead. It's outrageous. What are you talking about? Fine, we'll go away. You're crazy. And Jesus comes in. And in Matthew's gospel, he doesn't even say anything. You know, as in Mark, he says, Talitha kum, little, little girl rise, you know. Uh, but in, in Matthew, he just takes her by the hand, and she gets up. She gets up. Where Jesus is present, it ain't over till it's over. It's like the Princess Bride, right? The man in black, he's dead. But you take him to the crazy Billy Crystal guy, he's almost dead. There's a big difference between dead and almost dead, right? <laughs> Jesus is like that. Like We might think the situation is dire, it's done. Or Jesus is, man, life is contagious. To the world, dead is dead. Not when Jesus is on the scene. Jesus touches the girl and she wakes up. And it would be easy for me to conclude here, in fact, you're wishing I would, uh, and to say, have faith, have a good day. And that would actually be in uh, context with the I mean, that would be fine. The text says that. But I want to take you one level deeper, because I think there's more going on here than just have faith. These two stories, Jairus' daughter and the bleeding woman, occur sandwiched together just like this in Matthew in Mark and in Luke. And I think they're together like this for two main reasons. There's probably more. I got, I got two. One is, 
It probably happened like this. Like the guy came to Jesus, Jesus follows him, the woman touches him. It all happens like this. It's historically, it's what happened. But I also think that there is theology, uh, theological significance. I think that for every story we have in the Gospels, there's hundreds more that just didn't get in. Why this one? Why like this? Isaiah 64, 6 says, For all have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And I'm sorry to be crude, the Bible did it, not me. That is exactly talking about uh, menstruation implements. So, okay. So all of our righteous deeds are like that, filthy rags. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Isaiah is talking to Israel while they're in Babylonian captivity. Desperate for God to rescue them from that captivity. They had rejected him by turning to idols, going through the religious motions while neglecting the care of widows and orphans, the outsider. Now fast forward hundreds of years to Jesus. The religious leaders were still doing much of the same things. But in our passage, you have a woman who has been unclean like filthy rags for 12 years. Coincidence? Maybe. How many tribes are in Israel? 12. Mm. He calls her daughter, which is one of the ways that God refers to Israel all throughout the prophets. I can think of 12 places off the top of my head where daughter language is used for Israel from God. But this daughter, this daughter showed faith. And then you have this religious leader let go of his dignity and place his faith in the rescue of Jesus. By living example, Jesus is challenging Israel and he's challenging you and he's challenging me to become undignified where dignity stands in our way. Of trusting Jesus. He's found with tax collectors and sinners, and sinners like you and sinners like me. He is touched by a bleeding woman and he accepts her. And the worst thing a person can do that I just completely skipped over is touch a dead corpse. That was the king of kings of making you unclean. And Jesus doesn't just say with the word, to this girl get up he touches her while she's dead and makes her alive Jesus is the Lord who washes feet he is the God who hangs naked on a cross for you and for me that's not very dignifying by our definition but maybe we need to redefine what dignity means by the God who made us in the first place so I have a couple questions is your dignity holding you back from embracing this God and this life. It's not worth it. And what would it look like? What would it look like to practice undignified faith? What circles of people would it lead you to? What risks might you take? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for, uh, for not letting us define what dignity is, at least as it relates to God. Thank you that your story ought to define what dignity means for us.
And thank You that in Your story, we see You condescending all the time to meet us where we're at, at our most undignified moments. Lord, I pray that You would help us, those of us who have been rescued by You, to remember where we were at the pit when You rescued us. To never forget that if we have any shred of dignity, it's because You have rescued us. You have given it to us. Lord, for those here today um, who, who sense the rebellion inside, who sense that their dignity is uh, holding them back from receiving a crazy Christian religion or uh, a God that's taught about in a Bible, what is that? Lord, I pray that you would melt those walls and help us to receive you, the undignified God. Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy. Amen.